Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here's Johnny Gould. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. You've got the watch, we've got the turn. I've known Tim Marshall across 30 years. Our paths have crossed radio and television newsrooms at Independent Radio News, LBC and Sky News in London. And we've stayed in touch as he became a best-selling author on geopolitics. He's one of the media's good guys. He stays clear of political commentary. Instead, he sees the world from the viewpoint of the people and places that he observes. And that makes for the integrity of his commentaries and analysis. Basically, we just really need to try as hard as we can to understand the other side and, and seek to uh, seek to make compromises. Um, I'll leave you with that. I actually think compromises. Understanding people from their perspectives in such a short supply in today's social media rage. For those who listen, for those who are willing to listen, this is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. His latest Power of Geography, 10 maps that reveal the future of our world. Click on the link in the episode description to buy now. And stay tuned for an adult conversation on a snapshot of the world today. I do believe we are hardwired to be suspicious of the other. What we can do is overcome that hardwiring, but it takes a lot of work. But, but I start from the basis of geography, uh, then you layer on history and politics. We can learn a lot from Tim and his generosity of spirit. Tim, you talk in the language of peace. You're a kind guy and a good mate in the business. And I thank you very, very much for your time today. Uh, that's really very nice of you to say I am. Um, um, you know, well, I think most of us are. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. North America, Europe, the Commonwealth, the whole of the Middle East. The world is listening. Tim Marshall, a warm welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you very much, Johnny. Now, we've known each other for 30 years in both uh, radio and TV newsrooms. I was on your LBC radio show a few years back, and I remember when you, your fledgling writing career began with a, with a chat about football chants, and you've come a long way since then. Well, yes, it's been downhill all the way, because <laughs> that's possibly my favourite book, um, <laughs> Dirty Northern Bar Stewards, shall we say. Um, I thought it was a terrific book, it was explaining the UK through... Uh, the unpleasantness we hurl each other at each other on the terraces. Indeed, indeed. The power of free speech will always transcend political correctness on the football terraces. Now Very the- much so. Um, I mean, n- not always positively, but um, I'm, I'm interested to see some of the chance from a sociological viewpoint. So that's one thing. But the other one is about VAR, which I am personally wholly against. I think it's ruining the game. Tim, the power of geography is a firm rebuttal to those who say geopolitics is over. That technology had rendered borders obsolete. Now, your title is the starting point in kind of ridiculing the end of history as a concept. 
it's a nonsense. A, history never ends, and B, geography is always important. What is important about it can change with technology, but it doesn't make the geography itself not important. And, and well, people who argue that, you know, all the distances have been collapsed and, and that the, the geography is irrelevant, well, go, go to a small farmer in the Nile Delta whose government is now trying to persuade him to either change what crops he grows due to water and how much use there is for certain types of crops, or even telling him to move um, far away from his current farm um, because there may be a water shortage because Ethiopia, um, X hundreds of miles away, is building a dam on the Blue Nile. I mean, it's, it's as important now as it ever was. As for borders... Um, this is just wishful thinking. I, I've always argued that the worst song John Lennon ever did was Imagine. Um, right. I mean, you can imagine no borders, but 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 not not seriously. And my example is, we've done away with the borders. There's a fishing area, let's call it Grimsby, and they've only got so much fish, and one year there's not that many, and then some people from somewhere else come along, let's call it Norway, and, and start fishing there at which point they go and have a chat with them about it. Well, that's a border. You're never, ever going to get away from them. Now, the multipolar world is in a state of flux, considerable uncertainty. New competing powers must come to terms with their own geographies as they engage in their sudden new statuses. Once upon a time, America was the top of the hegemony. They had a bit of Soviet Union action. They were on their own for about 20 years. But now we're looking at India, we're looking at China, we're looking at a new Russia, and maybe even a conglomeration of the countries who've signed the Abraham Accords just to the south of the European Union might become, in their soft power ways, or indeed in technological ways, uh, world powers. All players, serious players, I would still argue that the Americans are at the top of the pile, um, primarily because of uh, military, but um, perhaps also economically. Um, but yes, we're clearly in, in well advanced into the multipolar world. And the difference between that and a bipolar world is that when you've got lots of actors using the, the space that a non-bipolar world gives them, by which I mean there isn't a world policeman or two world policemen anymore, then they, they, they seek, quite understandably, to um, advance their interests. Turkey is the best example. Turkey would no way have behaved in the way it's behaving at the moment during the Cold War. Wouldn't have bought a missile defence, its main missile defence system from the Russians. But there are many other examples. So that's one of the reasons for the uncertainties of this age which are greater than they were in the cold war but i'm i mean there are there are many many other uh, reasons behind them but i'm also arguing uh, in the book that we are rapidly approaching a new form of bipolar world i only use that phrase as shorthand because i don't know what exactly it will look like and and a new cold war ditto but you can already see countries making their choices. You can already see, for example, uh, Myanmar has uh, given up on uh, detente with the Americans and has pretty much thrown its lot in with the Chinese for the long term. Uh, conversely, Australia and the UK have clearly no longer hedging their bets 
um, about America and China. Uh, UK, for example, two examples, um, kicking Huawei out of the 5G system is one, and another one is sending the aircraft carrier, the new aircraft carrier to the South China Sea. They, they both tell you that as far as the current government is concerned, the choice is made, the die is cast. That is an extraordinary thin slicing of how a multipolar world really, really makes decisions right across which have consequences for absolutely everyone. Let's start with the biggest country in the world, that's Russia. Uh, It's enormous, uh, which rather than being a total advantage, must wrestle with defending that. For example, uh, Russia can't have a functioning navy all year round because it freezes in the winter. And uh, I've seen you speak on other podcasts about the idea that they're so big they neither call themselves or think of themselves as either Asian or European, a sort of continent on their own. <laughs> That's a reference to a time when I was up in the Ural Mountains, Ural's Mountains, which is the, the traditional dividing point between Europe and Asia. And I was with a Russian cameraman and there's a monument up there. And we were up in the snow looking down into Siberia, the West Siberian Plain. And I said, so come on then, what are you, European or Asian? And he said... Uh, I and we are neither. We are Russian. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it really struck home, made me, made me think a lot about it. As for the size, yeah, I mean, some of their ports freeze for part of the time, and they have to go up through the ice pack of the Arctic to get into the sea lanes, or they have to come out of the Black Sea uh, into the Aegean and then into the Med, and then only then can they try and get into the Atlantic, ditto out of the Baltic. It's not easy. So, you know, geographically, as a naval power, they're in a poor position, uh, despite being so large. Also, with a population of 100, what is it, 30 million now, I think, um, for the biggest country in the world, it's, it's, it's a big space to defend. Flatland in front of its main population centres is, is a, a poor defensive uh, area. And all these things have helped shape what has happened and how they think. And the greatest example is actually from the, the one of my earlier books, Prisoners of Geography, which is that armies keep charging through Poland. Poland is flat land. It's the narrow gap between the Baltic and the Carpathian Mountains. It's flat from France right through to the Urals. And if you're Russian and if you've been invaded from that direction so many times, inevitably, I think, your political class will uh, seek to either plug the gap, Poland, or at least dominate the land uh, in front of it, which is Belarus and uh, Ukraine. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Let's talk about uh, America still being out in front militarily, but uh, they've gone through periods of uh, isolationism and then sudden re-engagement with a president who... Uh, wasn't always easy to predict. And now we've had a volte face with 
Joe Biden and his administration looking very much like the Barack Obama administration of four years before. So with that in mind, are Russia in Syria because America is letting them? And and why do they obsess with the Ukraine as they did with Crimea and South yeah, Ossetia? Um, yeah, Russia's in, in, in Syria because of a number of reasons. One is that Obama simply didn't care about Syria. And in fact, most American presidencies haven't. Uh, but I think the current one does particularly because it's not really that strategically important to them and they're pivoting to Indo-Pacific. So with that, it was easier for Russia to insert itself into the Syrian conflict. It wanted to safeguard its warm water port. It's only a small port, but it's the only one they've got on the Mediterranean. And they needed to keep Assad in power to do that. But they've also made themselves a player in the conflict. If you want to solve that conflict, you need to talk to Moscow. And when you do, Moscow says... Yep, yep, love to help. Now then, about the uh, sanctions you've got against us on other issues. So it was a very useful ploy. It was a limited expedition. I called it the IKEA flat pack expedition. People <laughs> were talking about it being, you know, a new Stalingrad or, or their version of Afghanistan, which was always utter nonsense. And, and they've pulled it off, I, I think. Now, Russia has been on the front foot since about 1999, since Kosovo, and they've inserted themselves in various places, and they've done it extremely successfully. I don't think Mr. Trump pushed back against them very much. I think Biden will a bit more. Uh, I think there'll be a tougher line on Russia and an equally tough line as Trump took on uh, China. Now, that Syrian war is a total tragedy. It ramps up, it continues, and the world like you say, like so many presidents, don't seem to care about it. Russia are in there, as we've discussed. Iran are in there trying to build a land bridge to Israel, as Colonel Richard Kemp told me. And we'll come on to Israel in a moment. But uh, the Shia-dominated nations around Iran, like Lebanon, Iraq, and the Alawite Shia cousins of Syria, mm. are making Iran's pan-Arab, they're not Arab, but sort of pan-Arab, pan-Muslim nationalism a real threat to not just the region, but also to the world. Yeah, the Iranian foreign policy has also been partially successful, and the Americans partially delivered it to them by getting rid of um, Saddam Hussein. I'm, I'm not making a case for or against it, simply saying um, that's what happened. And when the Sunni Saddam was overthrown, and with him the Sunni-dominated regime, a Shia-dominated regime came to pass. So now you have, for the first time in history, uh, an Iraqi or a Mesopotamian, if you prefer, entity right. that is um, cordial towards the Persian Shia. Um, and then, yes, as you mentioned, the Alawites are an offshoot of Shia Islam, which is why Iran stepped in also to save Assad. And then the last bit of that land bridge you mentioned is, is Beirut, which links to the Mediterranean. And Beirut uh, is dominated by Hezbollah, the most powerful military uh, entity in Lebanon, much more powerful than the actual Lebanese army. And Iran has very successfully kept that corridor open. And the Sunni-dominated nations around it have been trying to cut it, and they failed. And indeed, as we are seeing in the constant wars in Israel and Gaza, a battle between a terrorist rocket attack and an Iron Dome defensive radar and windows of opportunity in the four Gazan wars so far fought 
between now and back to 2008. Opportunities for Israel, small windows of opportunity for Israel to blow out the metro tunnels to get rid of some of the embedded terrorism inside, you know, urban areas. Which brings us on to radar and satellite technology and its deployment from space. I mean, Tim, this is the next stage of um, this world pressure of, of warfare. Will it create, will space create more competition between world powers and create new opportunities amongst the biggest ones? Probably. Uh, it also creates the potential for cooperation, which we have seen uh, in space. Wars will be increasingly. Technological. Well, I suppose they always have done. You know, I mean, once you once you find out that if you make your bow out of a certain kind of wood, the arrow will fly further. You know, it's it's always relied on technological advances, but people often mistake that for being all powerful. Um, the Americans in uh, Iraq, for example, and for all Israel's military uh, technology, in the event of several Israeli soldiers being kidnapped by Hamas um, via one of the tunnels and dragged back into Gaza, just those three or four people could change the entire dynamics of a conflict, even when you've got Iron Dome and the rest of it. So going, going back to, oh, and on, on technology also, I think not many people really noticed the awful war in Nagorno-Karabakh last, uh, last year, when basically the Armenian army, the, the um, its armor was just wiped out from the air by drones, by the Azerbaijanis, mostly supplied by the Turks. And the Armenians had not invested in drone warfare and the Azerbaijanis had. Right, onto space. It doesn't have to be this way, but there, but there is obviously competition uh, between a lot of countries, but primarily Russia, the USA and China, with the China and the USA at the, at the head. Um, and a lot of it is commercial, and this is the difference between the Cold War and now in the space race. Then it was very much about proving that your system was superior. And so the Russians were the first uh, into space with, uh, with the Sputnik, and then the first to put a man in, a dog into space and a man into space, and then the Russians caught up and overtook them. But that was about proving your system. This is somewhat different. This is actually about ensuring you have uh, the military advantage by positioning your satellites. And I'm pretty confident all nations will develop killer satellites for defensive purposes. Um, and a, a war in space would be catastrophic because it could kill our economies because it'll knock out the satellite systems. And moving on from that, though, is the commercial advantages. And although a lot of it is by commercial companies, such as Elon Musk's, I've never seen uh, anything where commerce and uh, government was not interconnected. The East India Company is a very good example. Right. You know, the British Army often did things to the advantage of the British East India Company, for example. And so if it comes to pass, as I believe it will, that country X has the ability to get to a massive asteroid and mine it for rare earth materials, a misnomer there, but you know what I mean. I mean, there's one, for example, which is supposed to have as many as much worth of rare earth materials on it as the entire US economy over one year, trillions of dollars. Then there's probably going to be competition for that. Let's hope it's peaceful. Ditto the moon. 
the Artemis Accords signed last year uh, split the moon up into spheres of influence, but Russia and China were frozen out of the Artemis Accords, and uh, they are not bound by them or anything else that uh, those other countries have signed. So um, if anybody wants to enforce their zone of influence, uh, I'd like to see by what legal justification they would so do. That is a phenomenal uh, future orientated prediction there. Um, Back down to Earth and a conflict which is uh, creating huge world world headlines and creating um, social problems across the whole of the Western world. How would you judge Israel's political geography, Tim? Uh, A lovely long coastline, but smaller than Wales. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, and uh, what is it? 12 miles wide as well. In, indeed, point. indeed. And uh, IDF soldiers defending their borders, they don't even need binoculars to see the families that they come from and that they're defending, as you say, 12 miles wide at its narrowest and rockets flying in. I spoke to Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus uh, about the latest Gazan war, and he tells me that of the 4,000 rockets fired into Israel, there are still... 8,000 to be spent uh, by Mm. Islamic Jihad and Hamas. Israel is fighting the ultimate defensive battle. The geography is difficult from the Israeli perspective. The coastline uh, is beautiful and uh, brings in a lot of tourist dollars. But you've got two problems. One is the Golan the high ground. Well, it's not a problem anymore because it was taken uh, militarily. And so Israel will never, I I don't believe, and well, until in decades to come, um, the Middle East turns into a version of the EU. At that point, um, perhaps the Golan would be returned because the Golan as the high ground um, protects Israel uh, from two potentially hostile countries. The West Bank Uh, is an issue because it's also high ground. And from the West Bank, you look down into the plain in front of Tel Aviv. And when you look each side of that, that sort of very roughly 80-mile corridor is where the vast majority of the Israeli population and industry is located. And not being in control of the high ground, if the high ground is controlled by a potentially hostile entity, gives Israel a a headache. So although because of this geography, there may one day, God willing, be a two-state solution, I don't believe that two-state solution would include the border with Jordan being part of the second state. I think the Israelis would always insist on having that one or two-mile buffer zone, possibly with a land swap to, to compensate, because they have to hedge against the deal that they do with the now uh, equi- uh, state that accepts them, the Palestinian state, uh, does not in the future turn hostile and then begin to get the sort of heavy weaponry via that border up into the high ground. And so th- this, this, these geographical issues play into um, all the negotiations that are ever had. On the current situation, Iron Dome is is miraculous. I I think that photograph, I think it was an AP photograph, is destined to go down as as one of the defining photographs of of modern warfare. 
you know, you've, you've probably seen it, Johnny, on the Indeed, it's right. incredible. Um, yeah, the barrage of, of rockets lighting up the night sky coming out of Gaza. And then this swirl of Iron Dome missiles, which are, are sort of moving in all different directions as they uh, triangulate where they're going to go to hit those missiles. I think that's one of the defining images, both of this conflict and, and the modern warfare. Um, 10% still get through. Uh, Israel will not stop until it... Well, I think it, Israel has probably already achieved its um, one, of its, one of its major objectives, which is to deal Hamas such a blow that it will buy a period of relative calm. I don't know if it's a year or eight years. Hamas has already achieved its objectives in that it has successfully positioned itself as the defender of the Palestinian people and probably won itself some friends. And if and when it ever does come to elections in the West Bank, uh, people are so sick and tired of the PA, Hamas may have succeeded in doing what they've tried to do which is to persuade enough people to switch switch to them. Mahmoud Abbas is rumoured to have called off uh, an election because he feared that Hamas would indeed yeah. win. I believe that's the, I believe that's why. I mean, he said in the current situation with the tensions, etc., you know, he's delayed for 15 years. I, th- I think he knows that Hamas is growing in strength in the West Bank and he didn't want to risk it. I'm intrigued about something you said a couple of minutes ago about <laughs> if the Middle East became a version of the European Union, uh, which with its uh, multiple religions and ideologies and uh, statehoods and the basis of those statehoods sounds quite <laughs> incredible. And yet, and yet, Tim, we might have the kernel of a sort of European Union, perhaps even a model for the European Union to adopt, which is the Abraham Accords. I mean, on one level, the UAE and Morocco and Sudan will never join Israel in a, I don't know, a a Middle Eastern North African (laughs) Union as such because they're all so radically different. And yet uh, that nation-state model might be um, something which might have persuaded some Brexiteers to vote to remain. I'm not getting into Brexit. (laughs) I'm not trying to. I'm just trying to. I see the point you make about the, the, the Abraham Accords. And it does give a lie to all those people, John Kerry included, who said, let me tell there you this for a fact, no there will never be, uh, you know, a peace agreements between the Arab countries and Israel until Palestine is sorted. I mean, that was always not true because you did good impressions people never there. understood that the, the governments, and I think we do need to make the distinction, John, the governments of many Arab countries are sick and tired of the Palestinian issue and quite happy to make uh, peace with Israel and try to... Uh, forge a new era, but huge numbers of the populations are not. And that's another reason why Iran has been sending the missiles to Hamas, because if they can break the the Abraham Accords, they would be very, very happy. And there has been fairly large demonstrations. There was a very big one in Algeria against Israel. I haven't really detected anything bigger than any time before uh, of the outrage at uh, human loss of life. And the governments have been, I suggest, muted in their criticism, uh, including the Saudis. And there was a very interesting article written in a Saudi, in um, by a Saudi, who is a, a, a regime guy, he's not a dissident, in one of the major Arab newspapers, 
which it does condemn Israel and it does call it um, indiscriminate firing and on all the other things that you'll be used to hearing. But it also reserves absolutely equal criticism to Hamas and explains why Hamas needs as many Palestinian fatalities as it can get uh, in order to advance its aims. I mean, they would call them uh, shahid, martyrs, uh, that, you know, it's worth people sacrificing themselves for, for what they regard as the greater good. So it's it's not like it was before. It is a new time, possibly a new era. The Iranians are trying to break it. At the moment, it doesn't look like breaking. Uh, and if you can build on that through years of calm and sort out the problem, which I'm not convinced will happen in the near future, then yeah, the Middle East and EU, including Israel. They're in the Eurovision Song Contest. Well, that is true. And uh, the last time Israel won it was not that long ago. Uh, in fact, they they frequently win it um, in a uh, in a people's riposte to Gary Lineker and John Oliver. Are you playing catch up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. There isn't a a fertility rate problem in in Israel, Um, for instance, as there there is in in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be canceled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from a journalist. And often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Gould. The migration crisis in Europe, which is obviously connected to the wider area around Israel, to the Middle East and North Africa, is the biggest destabilization to the EU. And I think we're seeing in election after election, the center shrinking and extremes growing on both sides, even in this country on the hard left and in France on the right uh, I agree. And um, actually, there's something very interesting uh, I noticed in Spain. You know, you've seen the recent um, uh, 8,000 desperate people trying to get to the Spanish exclave uh, on the Moroccan coast. Um, Ceuta and Melilla. And to get to Spain. Well, the hard left party in Spain, their leader came out and accused Morocco uh, of using uh, people 
so, I mean, he clearly took the we need to protect our borders uh, stance, which for the hard left is, 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 is difficult for them to do. I think you're right. I think the bigger effect has been on the hard right. And I think this week's events uh, on the Moroccan coast will strengthen the resurgent right in Spain, uh, Vox and uh, a newly resurgent Republican Party together could potentially form a, a government. And I, I've, I've been arguing for several years now that the, 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 the figures we saw in 2015, 2016 of that crisis where Angela Merkel uh, welcomed people and then told the EU countries how many they would take and some of them said, no, we won't. I don't think that's a peak. Um, I think what's happened subsequently has been a lull and there will come a, a time and a catastrophe in the future where we'll see those numbers exceeded. And I think the European response will be to build higher walls and for their politics to shift further to become hard-hearted, which is why I further argue, because I don't want that to happen, that we don't uh, reduce our foreign aid budget as we're, we're doing. We actually increase it. Now, you can argue it from bleeding heart terms, uh, and I can, but you can also argue, argue it from selfish terms. Uh, if you don't want these countries to empty out, leave behind the least well-off, can't make it, have a brain drain, and have people coming in numbers which are not managed, but in the sort of scenes we've seen, then let's do more, a lot, lot more, to try to help uh, alleviate the conflict, the climate change and the poverty, which is driving the movement of peoples. That's a very, very substantial argument for someone's uh, own benefit. Now, we are being bombarded in the media in the West uh, about China. And indeed, if Frankie Goes to Hollywood was still recording, maybe two tribes would be about the US and China. But China has... Showing a... your age there. For, for, for younger listeners, <laughs> this was a popular beat combo of the 1980s. Several decades ago. Um, but China has a regional problem. And one of the things that you always state, and the book um, always talks about, is that you're, you, know, you must look at each country's geopolitical actions from their perspective, not ours. And, and, and they are Billy Nomates in the Far East. You know, we've got Japan, we've got South Korea, Indonesia, Vietnam, Malaysia, who are all allied to the United States. There's a Chinese wall of American allies which have always stopped its engagement around the world. So perhaps reports of America's demise are somewhat overstated and China's rise is also being quelled. Yes, and why should it be? Why shouldn't they uh, rise to be uh, the dominant power? Um, you know, there's no, there's no sort of statute of limitations uh, on these things. But I, mean, I argue it's, it's very important to look at things from both angles. Um, but what we often don't do is, is look at it from the perspective uh, of, of the other side, if you like. And there's a map I often uh, use which looks outwards from China into the Pacific because we, we often look at it the other way around. And, and it shows this, this, uh, this, this wall in front of them, uh, consisting of some of the countries and others that you said. And again, in, in, in geography and geographical and military strategic terms, if you have uh, Japan and, it, and its islands, well, it is a series of islands, and then South Korea, which also has some islands, 
and Taiwan, and then moved down to the Philippines. The gaps in between in naval terms, especially if you have 11 aircraft carrier groups, which the Americans do, is relatively narrow. And consequently, you can be blocked, uh, theoretically, China, from getting out into the Pacific. Ditto, you can be blocked from moving through the Malacca Strait. And they depend on the Malacca Strait to survive, basically. It's one of the reasons why the whole Belt and Road Initiative is going ahead to try and have an alternative to that. So from that perspective, it makes sense that China builds its shorter ship missile system, which it is doing, to push the uh, potential aggressors further out into the Pacific. It makes sense to cajole or dominate each of those countries in the wall to flip and uh, join them, which they're not being successful at at all. And it makes sense to build islands in disputed territory, such as the Spratly Islands, which I think it's the Philippines and Vietnam both claim as well, um, because you make yourself stronger. So when you, when you look at things from Beijing's perspective outwards into the world, what they do and why they do and what they might do in the future becomes a lot easier to understand and potentially predict. And it's why it's another reason actually why Australia is, uh, is not hedging its bets anymore. It's read the future. It believes that the Chinese will probably get past the first island chain. Well, the second island chain is on their doorstep and they would prefer to keep them as far away as possible. So, of course, countries who have always regarded America as their undying um, friend, uh, and we talk about the special relationship here, and Israel talks about it uh, with the United States. Um, Mike Pompeo, one of his last jobs in the Trump administration was to fly into Israel during the pandemic and tell Netanyahu, you know those ports that you're doing with Chinese money right up and down the country? Well, perhaps you'd better think twice about taking their money. Is it important for us to reach out to the rest of the world in that multipolar way and stop repeating this default idea of a special relationship, whether we think it exists or not? Well, I think this concept of global Britain, which is very, very loosely defined by uh, Boris Johnson, I think he came up with it when he was foreign secretary, is, is much more than the alliance with the United States of America. That said, I, I, I think that will remain the most important alliance. And, and I think that the, the Johnson administration has nailed its colours very um, firmly and clearly to the mast. But global Britain does mean uh, moving out more into the world. And we are seeing that at the moment with uh, efforts uh, to get the trade deal with Australia. Uh, Rightly or wrongly, you know, I'm not making, in, in nearly all of these cases, Johnny, I'm not making an argument for or against anything. I'm no. just stating how I think it is. Yeah. Ditto Japan, and also why the UK is trying to join the Trans-Pacific Economic um, Agreement. You know, I mean, we're not a Trans-Pacific country, but these things are very fluid and very flexible these days. And the UK is actually trying to get into that market as an equal partner. It may well do so. Japan is actually backing uh, its admittance. But there's no getting away from the fact that we actually live opposite the biggest and richest market in the world, which is the EU. And, you know, we've got to get though that uh, economic policy and political policy right as well. 
So, but you see, a lot of this is actually is actually underpinned by the Americans. This whole concept of the D10, the group of 10 democracies, or some people say D20, you can just pick a number between them and, you know, add right. some countries. That is all underpinned by the United States. You take the United States out of any of these equations and nobody is strong enough on their own to make a firm stand uh, on, on uh, certain issues. And that, and that includes Israel. You know, Israel, I don't think, would have survived uh, without uh, American help. It certainly would have been a, an awful lot uh, more difficult. And you can say that about several Arab countries as well. So, you know, I, I think I think the current strategy is based on a solid foundation of the past, but also a bet on the future that this is not a declining power. Um, other powers are rising to meet it, possibly China, very possibly India, but but less likely than China. But if you haven't got America, um, I think inevitably, as the years roll on, pressure from China, both its economic and its uh, uh, military power, would start to get countries to lean towards it. So make your choice. Make your choice. Do you go with the incredibly flawed democracy that's powerful, or do you go with the incredibly flawed one-party police state? <laughs> right. And of course, um, you talk about uh, American power being syndicated around the world, and we think about the UN and NATO, although the UN is looking very much like a 20th century entity yeah. in this multipolar era of chaos. And is there an ex as ex is there an existential threat? Are we looking at a League of Nations-style buckle before breakdown? NATO has suffered a huge crisis of confidence, mm. partly because Trump tried to force a reset. Yeah, um, very clumsily, and um, yes. you know he—he's—he he really, honestly, he—I don't think he knew what he was doing. I've never argued that he's stupid, <laughs> but I just think he's incredibly ill-informed. Yes. Um, on on the UN, the Security Council is moribund. We've seen it again with the Americans blocking the um, statement on Israel. You know, whether you're for or against. Um, that that blocking is not the point. The point is that that it's yet another example of how it's a moribund Security Council. When you come to the UN as a whole, it's it's not an exact comparison with the League of Nations because the League of Nations really was pretty much set up to do what the Security Council is supposed to do, and that is to get into various uh, arenas of conflict and try and sort them out equitably between everybody, or to put pressure on one aggressor, etc. The UN's much bigger than that, and so it does do incredible work around the world in, in, in helping people, in medicine, in development, in all sorts of things. But, but, you're, but you're right to describe it as a 20th century body. Um, its, its hierarchy reflects the victors of World War II. That was, you know, getting on to 100 years ago now, and I, I think it has to be reformed root and branch. I don't think it will be because I can't see any of the, P, the permanent five, the P5, like the UK, you know, Boris Johnson's not going to get up tomorrow morning and think, you know what, it's really silly. We're a country of 65 million. Let's give our place to India or Brazil. No it's just not going to happen. So it will continue to be weaker and weaker as the years pass, I believe. 
So we've decided that borders are important and uh, the best physical borders in the world are those that belongs perhaps to islands after all is said and done and Britain's relationship with the EU changes now. Uh, how are we set as an island? Uh, ports, physical borders and of course a timeline which lends itself to global powers. Um, you know, um, it's five o'clock over there and it's midnight over there. We're right in the center of it. And uh, it lends itself to those global powers in different parts of the world. We're, we're verdant as well. And we're also very windy. <laughs> these, yep. these have been great things um, in the 17th, 18th, 19th and 20th century for sure. What about the 21st century? We had oak trees to build a navy. We had coal to fuel it a yes. hundred years ago. And now we are, because of our geography, uh, very well positioned to make use of uh, wind, uh, especially in Scotland, and uh, rain, especially in Lancashire. Manchester, you know, <laughs> yes. I'm sure they should have a wind farm. Um, actually, that's something of a myth, but I digress. Uh, no, we, we, geographically, the UK uh, has, has long been in a, in a very good position, especially once the world modernised, let's say, you know, from well, picky date, 15th century, let's say. Um, I mean, we, we were a windswept island at the very periphery of what of history for, for a very, very long time. Um, certainly when the Romans uh, rocked up. But when, as the world changed uh, and the sort of beginnings of globalisation appeared on the horizon, as I said before, we were positioned, um, um, unlike Russia, with direct access to the sea lanes of the world. With, with no one to block us. Uh, further, uh, we, we had all this wood to, to, to build a navy, but we also had indented ports with, um, uh, indented coastline, sorry, which means a potential for deep water ports, which we have. And deep water ports mean big ships, and big ships mean ocean travel, and ocean travel means global trade. So countries that didn't have that, didn't have that advantage. Also, our rivers go quite a long, many of them, quite a long way inland. I mean, the Thames, you know, come, you can get big ships 30 miles up in to the great city uh, and then distribute them. So all these things were to our advantage, and many of them still are. Certainly access to the sea lanes, difficulty in blockading us, uh, deep water ports, big ships, uh, are now a very good pre-existing uh, transport network. Needs a bit of modernization, but there we are. And then the wind and the rain, as we try to wean ourselves off fossil fuels, also puts us in a, in a good position. The heritage of uh, the great successes of the previous century have now allow us to have a very educated population. Um, some of the British universities you'll find there in the list of the top 20 universities in, in the world. We still have a great amount of soft power uh, to, to project out into the world, which we use very well. We still train many of the future um, titans and politicians of, of uh, other countries. And so we're actually, we're not in a bad position geographically, but that's the geography. You've got to get the politics and the economics right. And the example of how not to do that is Argentina. I mean, we are now, I think it's the fifth or sixth biggest economy in the world. In 1907, Argentina was the seventh biggest economy in the world, but they got the politics and the economics wrong. They've got a pretty good geography down there. Um, so, you know, 
we're, we're, we're starting from a head start. But if you don't get it right, then you throw it all away. And on the subject of South America, uh, talking of old European cultures, the whole of the Americas is, in, is really controlled by two languages in a minority third, English and Spanish, and to a minor extent Portuguese. Uh, the impact of Brexit doesn't entirely put the three languages on the same side anymore. Uh, and Latin America has always had that problem, creating a unified continent uh, in the same mm. way that North America has achieved uh, so incredibly. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's more to do with geography and colonialism. Um, start with colonialism first. They went, you know, several countries went there and, and, and split it up. Most of them only were interested in getting inland to places that they could rob, then getting it back to the coast and right. sending it back to the old world. Right. And that's why to this day, they're not their cities is not are not as well connected as they they didn't bother to forge inland create communities and link them to other communities and it's held them back ever since secondly the spanish pretty much try to continue with the feudal system uh, and the great landowners and the last bit being you've got the andes which you know separates one side of the continent to the from the other uh, they're trying to overcome that with modern technology but they still have serious uh, transport issues because of the Andes, which is the longest contiguous mountain range in the world. And of course, you have the Amazon, which also um, divides uh, the continent. And you, you have parts of Argentina, which are desert, which are very hard to cross. So all that has held them back. In America, you have one relative monoculture, um, which once it gets across the Appalachian Mountains, um, it, it, it reaches the best farmland and best river system in, in the world with this mono. I mean, obviously, you know, there were Catholics, Protestants, Italians, Jews, you name it. But it, it was compared to Latin America. It developed a monoculture. They then gave away the land that they'd stolen uh, to ordinary people, which gave them a, a stake in uh, making the country a success, and they also bought heavily into democracy, uh, unlike unlike the uh, Spanish colonies and then the independent countries. So all those things, as well as the amazing geography of the United States, partially explains um, the differentials in the, in their purchasing power and technology and education levels to this day. Tim, one of your exquisite talents is to distill to a very accessible logical level highly complicated geopolitical situations. Is there any conflict that you don't understand the logic behind, the ones perhaps which have too much religion or politics within them? Or can you actually uh, logicize absolutely everything, whichever factor it might be? I personally can't because I don't know enough about um, certain conflicts. Um, but I suspect you can do if you know uh, enough about it. And there are some fundamentals I think you approach any uh, dispute, any conflict with, and, and, that, and that is geography and, and I'm, I'm saddened to say this, but ethnicity. Mm -hmm. I, I think it goes very deep. I mean, look, this may be sort of cod psychology or, or uh, some other science, but I, I do believe we are hardwired to be suspicious of the other. What we can do is overcome that hardwiring, but it takes a lot of work. But, but I start from the basis of geography, uh, then you layer on history and politics. Uh, 
But when you see the geography, you think, right, this, this people in this particular argument come from there. Okay, there's a mountain there, there's some sea, uh, farmland, whatever, whatever it is. These people down here have developed slightly differently because, you know, they're on the plain and mountain people are often very different to lowland people. The peoples that used to herd their crops in certain areas, the crops were no longer there. They moved down to the sedentary peoples. Um, and, of course, then they're in competition. And if they can't agree how to share these limited resources out, they're going to clash. So, you know, I, I think you can reduce all these arguments down without misrepresenting them and hopefully without, um, you know, making a cliche out of peoples. It's, it, uh, it's not an easy thing to do. But I, I think when you, when you delve into whichever argument you're looking at, it, it comes down to the concept of the other, the history of how people developed and the resources that they are hopefully cooperating over, but sometimes competing over. Tim, you talk in the language of peace. You're a kind guy and a good mate in the business. And I thank you very, very much for your time today. Uh, that's really very nice of you to say. I am, um, um, you know, well, I think most of us are. We really, we, most of us do want peace, but, you know, life gets very complicated. And I think sometimes a lot of people misunderstand uh, other people for taking a side. Basically, we just really need to try as hard as we can to understand the other side and, and seek, to, uh, seek to make compromises. Um, I'll leave you with that. I actually think compromise is a beautiful word. Um, if only John Lennon had called his record compromise, you might <laughs> have been more a of a compromise. Fan. Yes, yeah. It's easy if you try. Um, Tim, is. again, <laughs> thank you very much for a, a, a fantastic interview and, and quite a, a, and, and quite certainly a world briefing. Thank you, Johnny. Cool, that was good. Oh my goodness. <sighs> well, yeah. I mean, but you. you because I, uh... If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or click on the PayPal icon on the donations page at jewishstate.co.uk or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee at coffee.com slash Johnny Gould. That's ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould.